Hello and welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. My name is Claire Sudbury, my pronouns are she and her, and I am a lead engineer at Made Tech. a lot on this podcast about the building of software, but not so much about other public digital resources. On Tuesday 27th of July 2021, I spoke to Mia Ridge about how the British Library have enabled the general public to contribute to their online resources via crowdsourcing. Hello, Mia. Hi, Claire. Hello. So, Mia is a digital curator at the British Library. And I think that that means that she is curating digital content. And I think that curating means choosing, sourcing, displaying content, but in the digital realm. Have I got that right? Sort of. Curators used to be called keepers, which is a terrible term because it on the one hand, suggests the fact that they're looking after things and keeping them in their care, but it also gives a sense of a certain reluctance in terms of sharing them. And actually, my job is all about sharing resources and collections. My job is really to make sure that people can access and use our digital and digitized collections in scholarship, in research, and in creative endeavors. So I look after things, but my job is really to make sure that as many people as possible can use them in exciting ways. Fantastic. I love that. And so what we're going to be talking about today is crowdsourcing. But before we get to that, a question I ask everybody is who in the digital realm are you inspired by? So I have two answers. And one is the fact that I feel very lucky to be part of a broad online community. We used to meet at conferences in the before times. We share lessons learned. We inspire each other. We share the hard times, the barriers. So that's probably my Twitter network and various sort of mailing list and conference groups. It's very hard to define. And at the moment, I'm working particularly closely with Megan Ferreter from the Library of Congress and Sam Blicken from Zooniverse and the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. And we found a way of working together that's really grounded and honest and strong and incredibly efficient because we approach the world in similar ways but have very different backgrounds. So there's a kind of diversity in how we think about things, but a common core of shared values that makes them just a joy to collaborate with. And they're both really inspiring. And I think unofficially they're my squad, but I haven't told them that. (laughs) Fantastic. And we'll put links in the description so that people can find out more. Okay. So crowdsourcing, what is it? (laughs) (laughs) So there's a few ways of thinking about what crowdsourcing is. In the commercial sector, it's really drawing on the sourcing part of the phrase. So it's different ways of thinking about how you attract talent or people willing to contribute ideas or work. The challenge that we take on in cultural heritage is thinking of it really as a form of volunteering. So there's no financial recompense usually. Mm -hmm. So in the commercial sector or in the academic sector, people might be used to things like Mechanical Turk, where people are paid a couple of pennies or parts of a penny for a microtask. It might be labeling, say, some of the commercial services that pretend to use AI to do your receipts or something. Actually, someone is probably sitting there looking at a line of text and transcribing it or assigning a value to it in some way. Wow. And there are these massive systems that break up the task of looking at 
a whole receipt into smaller parts and assigning them to people and verifying the results. So crowdsourcing and cultural heritage draws on some of that, some of the same technologies and the thinking about workflows underlying the process, but also takes on the idea that it's a form of engagement with cultural heritage collections. Mm -hmm. So one of the projects that I work on is looking at a collection of playbills that's up to 300 years old. They're really fragile because they were never meant to be long lasting. They were just pasted up on a wall to let passers-by know what was playing in the theatre that week. Yeah. So you can't really access them in the reading rooms because they literally crumble. No one wants to see a historical record crumble. So some of them were microfilmed and then digitised, but a lot of detail was lost. And computational techniques like optical character recognition that does automatic text transcription can't read them. So we made a crowdsourcing project to ask people to transcribe the titles and the dates of these playbills. But the kind of the secret message is that we want people to experience these playbills. We want them to understand what entertainment was like in the late 18th or 19th centuries. So we've set the challenge of both being productive. We've got over a quarter of a million contributions from a couple of thousand volunteers but that also means that a couple of thousand people who probably wouldn't have in any other circumstance have experienced these playbills and thought about entertainment culture in Great Britain in the 19th century or in the late 18th century. Yeah. So it's a form of productive engagement with the work of cultural institutions in making our collections more accessible. So that fascinates me, the idea that you're asking people to volunteer and help you in this job of digital curation, but also in the process, you want them to become consumers as well. You're almost sort of sneakily asking people to do work, but using it as a way of getting them to be entertained, which you would think it would be the other way around. <laughs> you might ask people to be entertained and then find a way of sneakily turning it into work, but it's almost like you're doing the opposite of that. <laughs> it's, I mean, I've never thought of people who access our collection as consumers before. Mm -hmm. So we really talk about participants or in the British Library's case, readers. Mm. And I suppose they are consuming entertainment, but there's never a kind of commercial transaction. Mm -hmm. One of the lessons of COVID that really reinforced what the scholarship and practical experience has told us over the past few decades is that people value something constructive to do. Cultural organisations have a really long history of volunteering. So particularly in the US, if you have a tour of an art gallery or a museum, it might be done by a volunteer docent. People volunteer in their local history societies. They volunteer at local archives. Crowdsourcing means that anyone can volunteer from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it works on the assumption that people want to volunteer and it's about creating a framework in which they can do that. So it's about removing barriers to participation. We know that people feel quite intimidated by cultural institutions, particularly something like the British Library, where there's a kind of you know, you must be this high to get a reader's ticket. You need forms of ID. You used to need a letter of recommendation. Mm -hmm. People don't necessarily feel that a big research library or a fancy institution wants to hear from them. Mm. So in some ways, it's about saying, we do want to hear from you. The ordinary words that you use to describe works of art or photographs actually help other people find those things. So we might do something where people tag images to create a form of folksonomy, which is a very early 2000s term, this idea that if you get enough tags, they kind of form a loose pattern or hierarchy. But it is about creating a space in which we're saying we not only need your help in making these really, really vast collections more accessible, 
but we also value your unique perspective. Mm. Curatorial perspectives are one thing they're deeply informed by years of research and practice and academic study, but that's only one way of looking at collections. And then increasingly we're looking at community perspectives that are unique to the communities where things came from. Yeah. So that might be working with people who've worked in the theatre to understand how they view playbills, or it might be working with Indigenous communities to understand how they talk about their collections. Wow. I've never really thought of them as consumers before. It's a kind of, I just don't work in the space where we think about consumptive relationships or, or that kind of thing. And is that because it's much more interactive to you, that you're thinking of the materials that you create as being things that people interact with rather than consume? Yeah, very much so, because the point is that you want as many people as possible to have access to things. It's fantastic that people watch documentaries and read popular history books and watch BBC4 or whatever, but there's nothing like actually seeing for yourself what happened in the past. So reading old newspaper articles or looking at old paintings and feeling like you have the intellectual capacity to understand them, even if it's not within the same kind of research framework that others might view them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a little way back, you said that people have to be this high to get into the British Library. You, you weren't talking about actual physical stature, Not actual physical height, no. I was imagining like Alton Towers, you know, that you have to be this high to get on this ride. No, no, it's just the, the kind of intellectual barriers that people have. So there's a mystique around getting a reader's ticket. And obviously the library has really, really popular exhibitions and public displays. You can go into the library right now and stand in a quite cool, calm, dark area. There's Beethoven's original music scores, Beatles' original lyrics sheets with material that's over 3,000 years old. It's a fantastic experience, but for people actually moving from that quite curated public experience into actually using the reading rooms can feel like quite a barrier and people don't necessarily think that it's something that's accessible to them unless they are in an academic or in a research post. Yeah. Yeah. And also for those who haven't seen the building that the British Library occupies, it's extremely impressive, imposing, but also potentially, you know, intimidating. It looks like it's the place where the very clever people might hang out. And I could imagine that people might feel like they don't belong somewhere like that. So I can see how that could be an issue. Yeah. And there's a concept in museum studies called threshold fears. You can imagine walking into something like the British Museum, which has this kind of big courtyard and these porticos at the end and these grand steps. You have to pass through security and you go through and you're in these grand spaces and you pause and you don't know exactly where to go. You don't know how to behave. You don't know if you're welcome there. So for me, online participation has always been part of reducing threshold fear. It's about going into spaces where people are already online and saying you can have an experience of these grand cultural institutions you can do it in your pajamas on the sofa if you like you don't need to be fancy you don't need to have gone to a museum or a library as a kid you're welcome here as well yeah yeah and it was interesting to me when you talked about language as well and it occurred to me that because people are entering this rarefied atmosphere albeit digitally that they feel like they have to obscure their language and start using lots of long words? And do you sometimes have to kind of ask people to sort of dial it back a bit? Not so much, but that's partly because we tell and show people what kinds of words we're looking for. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the joys of crowdsourcing is that if you have a lot of images online, someone will come along who can apply these amazingly specialised words. If there's a picture of a ship, they can 
probably tell you when it was made, what kind of ship it is, how much it could carry, what kinds of cargo it might have had, name all the different specialist parts of the rigging. Mm. It's incredibly handy to have someone apply that really specialist knowledge. So it's about crafting the invitation and making sure that people know what kind of input is welcome. And I think that's also really important in terms of reducing barriers because people feel quite worried that they will look stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the last thing that you want anyone to feel in that space. So making it really clear what kind of input is wanted at a particular point is really part of the, the design process. Yeah. I had a very small experience recently that kind of gives me some feel for this, I guess, which is that I was doing a little bit of research into some family history and I was sent by a librarian an article which had been scanned. So I think it must have been a a digitised copy of a microfiche and it was quite low res and I had to concentrate very hard to be able to read it. And some of the time I was guessing and I was just working out, well, that word must be that word because of the context. And I was transcribing it for my parents because I knew that they would struggle to read this. And it was quite a long article. So it took me, you know, at least half an hour. And I was thinking, am I doing a job that I don't need to do? Is there some bit of software out there that will do this for me? A quick Google didn't reveal anything. But where are we up to in terms of the ability to scan badly copied, low-res newspaper articles from 1932, in this case it was. Yeah, so this is a very live question in my field. Part of my work at the moment is I'm a co-investigator on a really big data science and digital history project called Living with Machines. Mm -hmm. And the project was in part conceived of the fact that the Alan Turing Institute was physically based in the British Library. So if we had all these amazing data scientists in the building and we have these extensive digitized collections of newspapers, how could we combine them? So we're working a lot with digitized newspapers. There's broadly automatic text transcription for printed text. It's called optical character recognition. So most modern typed text is pretty easy for computers to recognize. So if you upload something to Google Docs, it might automatically transcribe the text from an image. Instagram certainly seems to recognize anything that's about COVID. It will give you a warning about how you talk about COVID. Mm. And that's a combination of recognizing the entities, the things in the image, as well as any text in the image. It's much trickier for older material. And that's why we have the Playbills project in the spotlight, because the Victorians were incredibly creative in terms of their typography and how they use type. So computers really, really struggle to understand the Playbills. But humans are fantastic at recognizing things. And that's why crowdsourcing is really powerful, because we're using the things that computers are really good at with the things that people are really good at. One of my favorite projects and one of the really earliest crowdsourcing projects in cultural heritage in the modern era is from the National Library of Australia, where they have a project called Trove, which is a treasure trove of Australian history and culture. One of the parts of that is a newspaper collection. So Australia invested in digitizing newspapers quite early on, and they did it as a publicly funded project, so they're all freely available. They realized that optical character recognition at the time was really quite bad. So rather than waiting for OCR technologies to get better, they decided to publish them as they were. So you could view the images, but you could also search the text to find particular articles. And once you viewed an image, you could also see the OCR, the automatically transcribed text alongside it. And if there was an error, 
then you could fix it. And this was really revolutionary because libraries previously hadn't been about letting other people affect what was in their records. Right. So Trove did this and it was really aimed at people who were using the newspapers for family history research or whatever they were researching. If you noticed an error, then you could fix it. But because the task itself was so satisfying, people started doing it as an end in itself. Mm. And that's really the kind of the joy of crowdsourcing is finding a task that is intrinsically satisfying. So it doesn't feel like you're volunteering. It feels like you're doing a hobby. Yeah. You're doing something that feels personally satisfying, but you're also contributing to something that's bigger than yourself. And in the last few years, that's been an incredibly powerful draw because there's so much bad news. Yeah. Hanging on to the fact that other people are doing something positive online. That's the draw, I think, of this kind of crowdsourcing, that you can improve the life of a stranger who you'll never meet I love that. I love that idea that you might think, oh, I could just fancy a good old correcting session. <laughs> That's what I need right now. <laughs> it's one of the problems with research in this area is that sometimes I would look at a project to analyse it and then it would be 2am because I'd been completely caught up in the enjoyment of the moment. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm quite choosy about who I'll work for. Made Tech are software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work almost exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about Made Tech is the people. They've got such passion for making a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, that's M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. We have free books available on our website at madetech.com slash resources slash books. And we're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. If you go to madetech.com slash careers, you can find out more about that. return to the interview just a quick reminder that before the break we were talking about the enjoyment that people get from correcting transcribed historical data you mentioned ai briefly before and i know that what can happen when you work with human interactions is that they can help to train models for ai so for instance particularly with things like categorization or recognition, actually, if you've got a bunch of humans kind of interacting and saying, right, this thing is this and this thing is this, then over time, AI can take over because effectively you've trained a model. Is that something that also gets used in crowdsourcing? It does. So there's a lot of work in human computation. There's different ways of describing it, but basically the idea that you're kind of working in a cycle of creating some ground truth data, using that to train machine learning, and then verifying the results of that machine learning by showing people the image that was classified by the AI. I shouldn't say AI because it's not really AI. It's basically machine learning or various statistical models in data science. Yes. And thank you, because there is a difference and it is important to highlight that difference. Thank you. Yeah. I think AI is, it's become a handy shorthand. It's very short. It's quite handy, but it's a lie. Yes. So we're seeing a lot more of those systems where people and computers work in conjunction to improve machine learning models. 
I think one reason that libraries and cultural institutions need to be in this space is to make sure that any work that's done with cultural heritage collections is done with our values. Mm-hmm. So your mission might be to create enjoyment, inspiration and learning. And you want to make sure that any work done with machine learning or data science also has those values where it's not just a kind of mechanical transaction. And that's where the difference with commercial work comes in as well, because we're not paying people. So it has to be an engaging experience and it has to be a rewarding experience. Yeah. So that thing of it being enjoyable, people who enjoy the stuff that they do tend to create better quality, I think. So it's a kind of cliche in the field that if you give a talk on crowdsourcing and cultural heritage or digital scholarship, digital humanities, the first question is always about data quality. Mm -hmm. And the answer is always that it depends. So we know with things like Mechanical Turk, there's a lot of work that happens in the commercial and academic computer-supported cooperative work and human computation in other fields to try and understand the factors that affect worker quality, the quality of the results that you get from workers. But you can imagine the difference between doing something because you want to do it versus reluctantly doing something because you need the money. Yeah. You might go to the extra amount of work versus just the bare minimum that you can. And we, we see people doing all kinds of really interesting extra work. So the Old Weather Project, which is a Zooniverse project, which is a really popular citizen science platform. Old Weather asked people to transcribe ship's logs. And the idea was that they'd also get the readings of temperature and pressure so that it would inform climate science models. Mm. But because the ship's stopped at all kinds of obscure places, people would get intrigued by the names of the Antarctic research stations or the fueling stations or whatever, and they would go and look them up. And then they'd go down a Wikipedia hole. And then half an hour later, they would come back and actually type in the name of the station, (laughs) having reassured themselves that they had correctly understood the word and were able to type it correctly. But also they'd had this amazing learning experience and this kind of delving into 18th century whaling history or whatever it is. And I think for me, that's the real A marker of success isn't how many words people type into your project, because I want people to have those experiences where they go off and spend half an hour learning about the history of rigging in theatres or how people got paid or how roles were divided or the history of stage management or stage prop design. And then they come back and they finish typing in words. That, to me, is a marker of success. Yeah, That's fantastic. And so you you touched on it and I was going to ask about, you know, the potential negative side of things. Somebody might come along and see that something has been categorised in a particular way and say, no, that's wrong. And actually the original might have been right, you know, and and they might be wrong. Uh, I can also imagine that there, there might be malicious individuals out there who might deliberately type in wrong information. And I also can imagine people who are just a little bit mischievous, You might be just a little bit bored and might just insert a rude word or a reference to Mickey Mouse in a place where it wasn't relevant or, you know, just for fun. Yeah. Is there a lot of that? There's not. There are so many more interesting places to vandalise. (laughs) When I worked in the Science Museum, there was a wiki that was available in gallery and the creativity of kids on school excursions in trying to get around various filters and traps because they thought they could get words displayed in public somewhere (laughs) in the museum. They thought it would turn up. Yeah. Incredibly creative, multilingual, phonetic, slang. I learned a lot about youth culture from just keeping an eye (laughs) on what they were doing. Yeah. But, yeah, there are so many better places to go and vandalise if what you want to do is be a bit mischievous. 
there's millions of Wikipedia entries that have odd facts because someone's done that. Yeah. But generally the platforms in crowdsourcing require, say, three people to agree on a classification. Mm-hmm. In some projects and Zooniverse, you can go up to 15 people. Ah, uh, yeah. So if you're doing something with climate modelling, you really want to be sure that the data is solid and robust. Unfortunately, if you work in contentious areas like climate change, there are people with a vested interest. Most people don't have a vested interest in changing the history of regional theatre in Britain in the 19th century. (laughs) So we do ask for classifications to agree, but we also allow people to tag. And the tags are creative expressions of what people are interested in in those playbills. They don't have to agree. So some people get fascinated by claims that a performance is the first time it's been played in the regional theatre. So they'll tag first time here. They might be interested in a particular actor. And it's about having a robust understanding of the value of different kinds of data. If you're collecting data for a statistical model, then it has to be accurate. If you're collecting data that might make things more discoverable in search terms, then creativity is actually to be rewarded. And I think typos are great because If someone makes a common typo, they're actually helping someone else who makes that common typo. Mm. Lots of people can't spell museum because the U and the E confuse them. Yeah, Library can be hard for people to spell. So typos have value in reaching other people who make the same mistakes. Mm. But that's because in that particular case, we want as many people as possible to be able to find things using a search term. So does that mean you deliberately leave typos in? In some cases, yes, because not everyone has the same education. Not everyone has the same training. A couple of my good friends are dyslexic. They shouldn't be shut out of accessing historical materials or cultural materials because they can't spell. Yeah, but that has now sent my mind down a whole rabbit hole because I'm thinking that you should deliberately create all the possible misspellings of all the words in your database, but then that would explode. Yeah. I imagine that would get rather unwieldy. Yeah, and in most cases, the search engines that get them to your catalogue or your page probably correct for typos. Mm -hmm. But traditionally, fuzzy search or mapping common typos doesn't happen in cultural heritage catalogues because they're designed with that very specific, highly trained user in mind. Mm. People who listen to the podcast regularly will know that I always do a bit at the end where I tell people how to spell my name. And uh, in the olden days, when the way that you got search engines to land on your site, I think people still do this, but search engines are much more sophisticated now. But you would put links in your site that were labelled with the thing that you wanted people to search for. So at the bottom of my old blog, maybe 15 years ago, were all the possible misspellings of my name as links linking back to the blog, just so that people who typed my name incorrectly into Google would still find my blog. Yeah. And I had fun thinking of all the possible ways in which people might misspell my name. But uh, yeah, okay. So what is your favourite example of crowdsourcing in the public domain? It doesn't necessarily have to be one you've been involved with. Trove is one of the favourites because they took advantage of that people were going to be looking at these newspaper collections and the interactions were so well designed. They minimised the amount of sign-off. They maximised the reassurance. It all sort of happened at the point where you were looking at an article and noticed an error. Mm-hmm. So you'd go, oh, typo. And then there'd be a thing saying, fix it. And you're like, oh, perfect. The little halo would go, <laughs> an angel would ring a bell. 
So I love that it's actually not that easy to access as a crowdsourcing project because it's not set out to be a crowdsourcing project. It's set out to be a project where you can correct as you use it. So you have to go search to find a typo and then correct it. Yeah. Flickr Commons is another one that isn't really a crowdsourcing project, but does say, hey, while you're here, you can add tags to describe things. And what did you just say? Something Commons? Flickr Commons. So Flickr was that sort of 2000s photo sharing site. Oh, yes. Yes. Flickr with no E. Flickr with no E. And it does exist still. And a lot of cultural institutions, in part through the tireless advocacy of a woman called George Oates, put any photographic collections that they had with no known copyright restrictions, which is a whole other minefield because copyright very much affects what we can do, put them on Flickr Commons. And because Flickr was already set up for commenting and tagging and you could put things in albums, people sort of went to town on these gorgeous old photographs and tagged them and added comments. In some cases, they, they identified people and places in those photographs. So they provided information that the institutions didn't previously have. The National Library of Ireland used to do a fantastic job of that, where they had someone who monitored and commented and sort of really encouraged people to add information about parts of, say, rural Ireland in photographs that really needed people with local living memory of those places to identify them. Mm. So they're not, strictly speaking, crowdsourcing projects, but they had an element of participation and a reason to participate that sort of puts them in the same category. And I think for libraries and cultural institutions, the fact that they asked unknown people for input was at that point a kind of a big cultural shift. Now it's sort of the norm where we know that people outside of the institution, people who might not normally be those contributing to records have something useful to say, but that shift is in part due to projects like Flickr Commons and Trove and a lot of the earlier crowdsourcing projects. I'm currently working on asking people to look for industrial accidents in 19th century newspaper articles. <laughs> and I love that project partly because it's really gory. And I get these comments saying, this is disgusting, but it's also addictive. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's something, particularly in the early stages of lockdown, where we were all feeling quite sorry for ourselves. It was fantastic to actually be reminded that the world has always been a bit crap. Um, <laughs> there are always horrible ways to die. And it gives you a sense of perspective in that you know, for most of us, the pandemic was a horrible experience, but we've been through worse in the past and we will again, I guess. Yeah. But I, yeah, I just enjoy any opportunity to get people past the storytelling about the past and actually show them material so they can have a more informed view themselves and really get the texture of what life was like in different parts of the world at different points in time. Yeah. And you talked about minimising sign-off. Do you mean minimising the kind of the gateways that, that people have to travel through in order to get approval? Yes. So one of the genius things that Trove did was it displayed the original text and the corrected text. And that did two things. One, if you had corrected text, you could immediately see the difference that you'd made because the typos look like line noise and now it looks like beautiful, clean text. Yeah. And if you were a sceptic, you could see what had been changed. Yeah. So you could see that no naughty school kid had come along and added swear words. But actually that level of transparency was quite difficult for institutions to manage. It used to be that things would go away, they would be verified manually by a quite expert user, and then you would eventually see the results 10 years down the line. Mm. So that sort of immediacy was really important. Yeah, so simple but so powerful. Yeah. 
So I've written a quote down here and I don't know where I got it from. <laughs> but what I've written down is successful crowdsourcing projects reflect a commitment to developing effective interface and technical designs. And that made me think about the connection between crowdsourcing and user experience design. Can you describe in a nutshell that connection or is it too big? <laughs> well, I suppose for me, I got into UX and human computer interaction through creating systems as a software engineer that then weren't used as I expected. So that completely applies to crowdsourcing. If you don't apply UX design and UX thinking, then you unintentionally create barriers, you use jargon. If you don't understand why people might be hesitant, the fears that they have in contributing content, if you don't understand what kinds of rewards people seek from voluntary activities, then you can't design them. Mm. So designing with UX in mind and testing and making sure that your ego goes to one side where people tell you why something doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. It's a really important part of the design process. Yeah. And is there a lot of user research? Most of the user research is in the commercial or academic sectors. So actually there's a job of work to translate it into something that's accessible to practitioners. So recently I co-wrote a book called Collective Wisdom that is about trying to match that the really hard-won experiential knowledge that people who run projects and who volunteer in projects have with academic research mm. because practitioners don't have access to journal articles and don't have time to read and translate highly sophisticated experimental models into practice. Mm -hmm. So a lot more work could be done there in bridging academia and practice or learning from the commercial sector and applying it into practice. Yeah. And in this context, when you say practitioners, what level of abstraction are we at? Are we talking about the people who are volunteering or the people who are coordinating those projects? Mostly people who are coordinating the projects because they're the ones with the power to apply the lessons. But I also think that the volunteers often have really high levels of experience there. They've seen lots of projects. They can give you amazingly on-point critiques of projects based on how they view things. Mm. But it's, it's mostly the stakeholders and the designers and the software engineers who implement or operationalize things, who have the power to change things. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to tell me one thing that's true and one thing that's false about you. And then I'm going to have to remember to ask you to tell me which is which. But the listeners won't hear that answer. They will have to subscribe to our newsletter to find out. So, I mean, obviously I stayed up late last night to watch the Olympics because I love all sports, especially televised sports. Mm -hmm. And my scariest moment is when I was pulled off a minibus in Moldova, crossing over the border into Transnistria, taken into a back room and interrogated by border guards. Wow. Okay. So what's the best thing that's happened to you in the last month? Could be either work-related or non-work-related. I went to a garden party and I've been shielding for more than a year now. So it was so amazing. I think I started to believe that friends and colleagues only existed as little squares on the screen. <laughs> so standing in a backyard a little bit dressed up was just a fantastic, wonderful, ordinary thing that I'd really missed. Brilliant. Brilliant. And where can people find you? And do you have anything that you'd like to plug? I am on Twitter at Mia underscore out. I blog at openobjects.org.uk and my website is miaridge.com. And if people want to get involved and help you with some crowdsourcing and are now all excited about the idea of 300-year-old playbills, how do they get involved in that? 
So they can look for at libcrowds, which is the Twitter account I run for work to share library crowdsourcing projects, or just have a look on the Zooniverse because there's everything from ancient Greek parchment to galaxies to counting penguins in Antarctica. There's so many different projects. Lots of them are good for kids. Also from the page, if you like reading old handwriting, if that kind of puzzle is enjoyable to you, then from the page has got lots of manuscript, which just means handwritten text, everything from field notes from biologists to family history recipes or anything you can think of between those two sites. There's lots of different things to explore. Fantastic. And that's Zoo, Zooverse? Zooniverse. So Z-O-O and then N-I-V-E-R-S-E. So it was originally about looking at something they called Galaxy Zoo, which was lots of images of galaxies that needed to be categorized in terms of what kind of left or right or what kinds of arms the galaxy pictures had. And from there, it became the Zooniverse. Wow. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much. No worries. It's been really good to talk to you. As always, to help you digest what you've just heard, I'm going to attempt to summarise it. Crowdsourcing in the public sector is a form of engagement with cultural heritage collections. For instance, transcribing the titles and the dates of playbills that are hundreds of years old. Cultural organisations have a long history of volunteering, and digital crowdsourcing means that anyone can volunteer from anywhere. People really enjoy engaging with these original materials. It reduces threshold fear, and some of these people will have very useful specialised knowledge. Optical character recognition is used for automatic text transcription, but it has its limitations. For instance, when trying to translate the Victorian's creative use of typography. Crowdsourcing is powerful because it's combining the things that computers are really good at with the things that people are really good at. Some of the inputs that come from crowdsourcing are verified. For instance, classifications have to be verified by several different people, but tags are not because they represent people's personal opinions. Also, typos can be deliberately preserved. A good example of crowdsourcing in the public domain is the Trove project of the National Library of Australia, where you can see the source material side by side with the OCR digitised versions and correct errors instantly on the page, which is something that people find really satisfying. Other examples are the Old Weather project from Zooniverse, which is about transcribing ships' logs, or Flickr Commons, which is about tagging photo archives, or the National Library of Ireland's project, which is harnessing local knowledge of rural Ireland. Machine learning, which is not the same as AI, can also be used in conjunction with crowdsourcing. But it's important to make sure that any work done is not just a mechanical transaction and that it maintains the mission and the values of the organisation. For instance, creating enjoyment, inspiration and learning. You can apply UX thinking in the sphere of crowdsourcing to understand how best to engage people and what barriers might stand in the way of participation. OK, that's the end of the interview section, but that's not all. Stick around for some extra content. Every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to Hack of the Month, where one of my colleagues and in the future our listeners too will share a life or a work hack. This time, we're going to hear from Chasey Davis-Wrigley, who is a lead engineer at Made Tech. 
A great way to improve your ability to learn is to vary the way you approach learning. So you are learning by seeing, hearing and doing. There are some useful visual ways like creating your own mind maps, reading books and articles or watching YouTube tutorials. You could also listen to webinars and podcasts. And then there's having a go yourself and try doing what you want to learn. If it's learning a new software language, try doing some code cutters or try setting yourself some useful mini projects. This is good for a few reasons. Not everyone has the same learning style. Some people learn better by seeing, some by listening and others by doing. We might not always know what our learning style is. So by trying to absorb new knowledge through different ways, it should help us better understand what our own learning style actually is. Even if your best learning style is visual, by also listening and doing, we're actually reinforcing the learning we're attempting to achieve. Finally, by varying the way we interact with the material, we are less likely to become fatigued. After all, a change is sometimes as good as a rest. Hi, I'm Jack, Maytex Events Coordinator. Now, working in the public sector means that at Maytech we really care about making a difference. So, for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing small pieces of advice to make the world a better place. Today's advice comes from Alicia Lamy, one of our bid managers here at Maytech, who has some advice on making time for social chats, non-work related, even if remote. Alicia, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think just with everyone moving to remote working with COVID, uh, we've got to a situation where it's very easy to just get in, get things done. But in actual fact, we miss those water cooler moments. So it's really nice to make that time to create those relationships and just get to know people. And sometimes you just need to remind yourself that let's take five minutes at the beginning of this meeting to just introduce ourselves, say something we've done, do something a little bit different, just build those relationships. I couldn't agree more. Do you have a sort of go-to icebreaker question? Depends what day the meeting is. Sometimes it's as simple as, what did you get up to this weekend? Or have you been able to do anything? A lot of us starting at a new company as well. There's been a lot of opportunities just to understand where people live, how they live, you know, who they're living with, and just getting to know what their family life is like. It's nice to sort of remind yourself that we're dealing with actual humans rather than just the faces on our screen. Absolutely. That's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you for taking the time, Alicia. Thanks, Jake. And that's the end of another episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us ratings and reviews because it pushes us up the directories and makes it easier for other people to find us. Speaking of which, thank you to our latest reviewer, Mark Butcher, who enjoyed our Communities of Practice episode with Emily Webber. I've got a few talks coming up. You can see the details on my events page on Medium, which is linked to from my Twitter profile. And you can find that at Claire Sudbury, which is probably not spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt E-R-Y at the end, the same as surgery or carvery. You can find Made Tech on Twitter at M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H and do come and say hello. We're very interested to hear your feedback and any suggestions you have for any content for future episodes or just to come and have a chat. Thank you to Rose, our editor, Gina Cady, our virtual assistant, Viv Andrews, our transcriber, Richard Murray for the music, there's a link in the description, and to the rest of our internal Made Tech team. Kyle Chapman, Jack Harrison, Carson Robb and Laura Plaga. Also in the description is a link for subscribing to our newsletter. 
We publish new episodes every fortnight on Tuesday mornings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.